Again, Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will no longer, you will, and no longer will you call me my bell. For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth to you, betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and they shall, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promised hope of your Son, our husband, the Messiah, the great and mighty King. Father, we thank you for this promise and a very grim and dark story, which is the very clear reality of our condition in sin apart from you. Help us, Father, to have hearts that would be honest, to understand the depths and seriousness of our sin, and help us to have hearts of hope, understanding the immense grace and love that our husband gave for us to win us to himself. We thank you, Father, for this time of year where we are to remember. We thank you for this day where we are able to come and to sing praises for this work being done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we are in the next to the last sermon in this series, uh, an Advent series. Uh, that is going through each of the commandments, two commandments per Sunday uh, leading up into Christmas, and we will finish the last two next Sunday. And very much in a, a very similar spirit today, I want to recount those particular highlights that we have said that the commandments of God are not just there to remind us of our sin, it's not just there to remind us of the righteousness and goodness of God, but to remind us of the very gifts that were accomplished, that were purchased and given to us in Jesus Christ when he came in the flesh, lived, died, rose again in his reigning, that he says himself by his very words that his purpose in coming which Advent is the anticipation of his coming. And as he comes, he says, I have come to fulfill the law. So when we look at the law of God, for those who repent and believe, for those on this side of salvation, of understanding what Jesus has done, now when we look at the law, we celebrate. And we can actually go through the commandments as a list of gifts given to his people. So very much in the same spirit of the 12 days of Christmas, you know, y'all know the song on the first day of Christmas, you know, and then you go all the way through and they repeat everything. And then by the end, you have this huge, enormous amount of gifts, just like the song reminds you of how enormous of a gift you have. 
Now, that particular song, from what I understand, was given to be representative of the things that God has given to us. The partridge in the pear tree is a symbol of Jesus himself. And it is a legend that that was actually to be a bit of a catechism. Well, when we go and look at this once again, going through the gifts of Jesus Christ, may it be that you would almost think of me repeating and highlighting these commandments now as a reminder of those gifts. So on the first Advent Sunday, I preached about the first two commandments. One, we see that by way of him, God being in the flesh, Emmanuel, he is with us. He fulfills the first commandment, first of all, by being God in the flesh himself. Without Jesus, we cannot have God. And by drawing near to us first, we are able to actually draw near to him. Jesus saves us from our doomed existence of grasping at false gods. The second commandment, Christ serves and worships the heavenly father according to his father's will versus his very own by saying, thy will be done versus his own will. This fulfills the love and obedience to the father. He defeats Satan's temptation to worship him by truly submitting to adherence to God's word and therefore establishes the promise of steadfast love for a thousand of generations for those who believe. Because he first loved us, we are saved from the death of self-love. On the second Sunday of Advent, I preached for you the proclamation of the third and fourth commandment. Third, Jesus has, but is also given the very name of God as the Son of God. And by emptying and humbling himself to obedience, he is brought low so that he may be exalted. Therefore, he has the name above all names so that he may have the authority to grant that name for those who the Father has given him, those who he won at the cross. Therefore, we now have his name. And by calling out to the name and authority of Jesus Christ, we are saved. Fourth, Jesus came to work. But Jesus came to work so that he may rest and grant us entrance into his rest. He has been given the earned name Lord of Sabbath with the authority to give rest and mercy to mankind. His work and rest saves us. And our only access to the hope and salvation is to actually rest in him. The gospel call of repentance and faith is a command to rest in Jesus. The third Sunday of Advent, I preached for you on the fifth and sixth commandment. Jesus is the son of all sons. He is the son of promise. Obedience to the fifth commandment promises that it will go well with you. The heavenly father responds to Christ's submission in honor to both his heavenly father and earthly fathers by declaring that he is well pleased with his son, Jesus. His substitutionary atonement for us means that when the Father... Now get to this. This is one of my favorite things. That when the Father makes that declaration for his Son, he is also well pleased with us. And the sixth commandment in Isaiah 53 tells us that even though the promised Messiah had done no violence or murder, his grave was made with the wicked. He poured out his soul at the hand of murderers to be numbered with the murderers. Being the exact imprint and image of the Father, he is the only one. He is the only one who can make purification and payment for our violence. Therefore, he has authority to give and to take up his life. And by his life, our lives will be raised with his. So the purpose of the law is to highlight our sin by highlighting the very character and person of Jesus Christ. But it is to highlight the very goodness and promise of our salvation. As Galatians 3.22 says that the scripture, which is the law, imprisons everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. The law becomes a gift for those who believe. 
It is impossible for us to obtain the promise by obedience to the law. But it is also impossible to obtain the promise that God promises without Jesus' obedience to and fulfillment of the law. It is a necessary component. He's just not there to give out without a cost the grace and mercy. There is no grace unless he actually obeys it and fulfills it himself. He had to be incarnate in flesh to be able to obey and fulfill the law. The declaration of the law kills us, but the fulfillment that Christ gives, gives us eternal life. Like I said before, Christmas is actually all about the gifts. It's just what gift and gifts are the question. Jesus is the answer. And again, it's not just some arbitrary and personal definition of what you might contrive that Jesus is to you. The true gift of Jesus is by his fulfillment of the very purpose that he came. You cannot steal from Jesus what kind of gift he is by just applying it by some arbitrary mindset of what you think of Jesus. He will tell us what kind of gift he has brought to bring to his people. Instead of first asking you, like I normally do, what are the next two commandments? I want to look at it this way. What two headline things in our culture, both local and national culture, are most detrimental and destructive to us as individuals, families, and communities? What I'm saying here is that when you think about the headlines that are out there, and you can, you know, it, it, this is kind of a tough question. Because you could go through, any time you break any of the commandments, you're breaking all of the commandments. And so it would be hard to say that you're wrong if you named and numbered any of the commandments. But what would you, if you turned on the news and you were just taking an observation, or now if you pull up the news on your screen or on your social media or whatever, what do you think two of the most destructive things are occurring in our society today? That has to do with the breaking. What two laws are being broken, would you say? Sexual abomination. abomination. All right. Murder. Murder. Idols. Idols. Like I said, I can't really argue with any of you all. But anything else? False witness. False witness. Lies. Do not steal. steal. I think you know where we're going, so you're you're, kind of... Typically, we don't think about steel, but I would say that's very much in the news also. I would agree that, that the sexual abomination, the whole concept of sexual identity and confusion is probably one of the, the, high line, the, high, the most highlighted headlines that I see in the news. Now, I often wonder when I pull up the news, if does the computer know what I'm thinking about, so therefore it's putting up the news. But I am pretty certain that if you even look at what's going on in the Supreme Court and what's going on in our nation, that you, it would be hard not to argue that sexuality is one of the primary headlines, which is associated with the seventh commandment of thou shalt not commit adultery. But I would argue that in our culture today, in our particular, in our nation, that thou shalt not steal is very much a thing that you see in the news today because we're thinking a lot about the economy. We're thinking a lot about the government giving money to this and giving money to that. And we are seeing that we are in an economical crisis in our country. And it has to do with our spiritual appetite. We're in a crisis not because there's just not enough money, but it's a matter of what we want to do with stuff. And our appetites for things and the power that comes from things. I would make an argument, and again, I could be easily defeated just as like any of all other arguments, that those, these two particular commandments of adultery and stealing are some of the most prominent things on the surface 
of the things that we see that are destructive. Now, when I say on the surface that you know, underlying all of that, of course, there is idolatry and, and not having God as your God and not worshiping him according to his command and, and not resting in him and not submitting to authority. And, and, of course, deception and covetousness are down deep into the hearts so within the activity of our sin. It is likely that the, seventh, the breaking of the seventh and the eighth commandment are some of the things that we can see at the surface more clearly. We could say it's sexuality and materialism, or sexual identity and consumerism, or lust and greed. I brought up these words in front of my family today. I said, I'm going to tell people these two words today, and I don't want to throw people off too much. But I believe that if we look at the headlines today, that we would see a celebration of androgyny. You may know what androgyny is. So not a very fun word, not a word that we typically use very often. But what does androgyny mean? It's the erasing of the distinction between the sexes or the combination of the distinctions into one. It's to make it as one versus male and female. And I believe that that is actually the root of the sin, one of the roots of the sin when it comes to adultery. That it's a confusion, a deception of understanding the very role of male and female. And so this androgynous feast that is going on in our culture today is very much a heart of the very sin of committing adultery. And I want to hone in and focus a little bit on that because many of us may be able to argue, well, I've never committed adultery against my spouse. Or maybe you could say that I am not involved in an act of adulterous or fornicating lifestyle. And so you might think that you are removed from the participation in this sin. And the book of Hosea is the context and the setting of Hosea is that the culture, the religious culture of that time was to merge pagan religion and philosophy and put the name of Yahweh on that philosophy. And the problem is not just what the world is doing in understanding this androgynous love fest, but how it has crept into the church amongst the people who proclaim his name. The other word that I want to throw out there to, for us to consider is existentialism. I knew I was going to watch that. What does existentialism mean? You create your own destiny. You're your own person. And by your own will, you can choose whatever you want to do. And that is very much a highlighted element. But what we are doing as human beings, we are ultimately stealing what God has purposed. And we said it belongs to us. And I think that is actually the heart of all theft, of all stealing. You know, if you said, well, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't taken anything from anybody. Or I haven't done that in a long time or whatever. But the whole idea of taking our very purpose and identity and shaping it into our own as if it is removed from the calling of God is the very first heart of what the sin of stealing is. The definitions of androgyny is the quality or state of being neither specifically feminine or masculine, the combination of feminine or masculine characteristics, The definition of existentialism is a philosophical theory or approach which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of the will. I think it's interesting. You can tell that whoever wrote that definition is one who might think very fondly of that definition. But this idea that they're responsible, well, who are they responsible to if you are your own independent entity other than yourself? Even that definition and how it's written shows that there is still this desire of accountability because they know the danger of what that actually means when you are removed and you're nothing but your own entity of your own self. So the fifth commandment, of course, says it more simply. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. But Christian counselor and author Paul Tripp, he writes in a book called Sex and Money, that it, the heart of this is pleasure. We live in a world obsessed with finding it, 
passionate to enjoy it, and desperate to maintain it. Chief among such pleasures are sex and money, two pleasures unrivaled in their power to captivate our attention, demand our worship, and drive us to hide or to despair. That it is this pleasure, this desire is the very heart. We see that Timothy says that the love of money is the root of all evil, and then says that it is this craving, this hunger, This appetite, that pleasure and desire is one that is very much one that brings in both the seventh and eighth commandment. Now, we know that God does not want us to be removed from having pleasure or desire or any kind of joy or enjoyment. We know if you are good children catechism people that our very purpose in life is to do what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So when we see that there is this perversion of pleasure and desire, we see that it is actually ultimately stealing pleasure and desire outside of the context of how God desired it for us. Now, what I'm doing here for you today is I'm building up our cultural context so that you could maybe look at these two commandments beyond just an act of committing adultery in a marriage situation or in a fornication situation and beyond just an understanding of taking an item from someone. That the very heart of these two commandments being broken have to do with this misapplication or this perversion of pleasure and desire. And that the context of Hosea was this is a not a a pagan people that is in the book of Hosea. As it has already been mentioned, Maharus, this was Judea and Israel. These were God's people. And Hosea is a very unique book compared to all the prophets because when you look at the biblical scholars, they have a really hard time determining whether it's actually poetry or whether it's prose. There's even debate of whether Hosea really did marry a prostitute. Now, I would say that it's both. It is very much prose and poetry that is both participation, but also pointing to a greater reality of God's people by synchronizing pagan thought into the things that belong to God. And God desired to give us the prophet Hosea to highlight our need for Jesus by basically calling us a prostitute, a materialistic prostitute, a thief of a prostitute that wants to take the things that belong to God and give them to themselves. Hosea very much is an Advent book. I don't know if anyone's ever seen a Christmas card or an Advent card that has Hosea printed in it. I've actually manicured my sermon to be very careful not to read certain passages because I just would be embarrassed to do so. (laughs) It's that graphic in detail, but through the graphic detail of the book of Hosea, we understand just what gift we have in Jesus Christ by him coming to us as the faithful husband. But we have to go back to the garden to understand what the language in Hosea is ultimately all about. So if we go back to the garden, we first see that God created us in his image, both male and female. Before the very first command is given, we understand who we are and how we are to be seen. We are image bearers of God, both male and female. And female. If God is going to introduce mankind in that way, we should know that those two particular distinctions of being image bearers of God, but also sexual beings that are either male or female, are very significant to our identity. And when we understand that about the proclamation of who we are in God's Word, you can understand why Satan is going to attack that distinction with all tremendous fervor. But what is ultimately the first command that we were ever given? 
What is the first command given to us by God? I have a lot of quizzes for you all today because I know you're all tired from all your Christmas shopping and, and being out and about, so I want to keep you awake today. What's the first command that God gave? To be fruitful and to multiply. Very good, Dave. After he makes that distinction known to us that we were made in his image and that we are male and female, we are to be fruitful. We are to be workers. We are to produce fruit, to make stuff, to make things multiply, and to take dominion of this earth, that this earth that was created by God was given to mankind who bears his image, both male and female, and we are to get to work for his dominion. And for his glory. And then he tells us what kind of fruit we are to eat. How we are to participate in receiving the fruit of that labor. And he says that all the fruit is for you to eat. Except one. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 2. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast and filled and every bird in heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But then we fast forward and we see in verse 22, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. We see here that in the very beginning, we have a calling to work, to be fruitful, to multiply, to work in the garden. And that God made a distinction between those who would bear his image, both male and female, so that they may accomplish that very work of being fruitful and multiplying and taking dominion. We see that all creation was put under in that dominion so that it would bear forth a fruit of glory to God. But then in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then here's what you need to catch for today. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes were both open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we see that we have the first command was to be fruitful and to multiply. And God had given all of creation under the dominion of mankind to be about this particular work. It only had one particular exception, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. But when the woman looked upon it, that there was this delight in it. There was this desire. There was this pleasure. She knew that there would be this particular pleasure. Now God had given all things to them except this one thing, to receive pleasure and goodness, but the desire to take some kind of pleasure, to steal some kind of pleasure and delight outside of the will of God. And therefore, when they did take that particular fruit that was forbidden to them, they knew that they were exposed. 
that they became that which was naked. They had lost the covering of God's goodness, and then they needed some other covering now to cover them. So when we think about this, I want us to look in the order of three particular things to highlight today. One, it is the desire for pleasure. Two, that there is a desire for purpose. But then lastly, that God has a desire for a people. And what we see in the book of Hosea is that when this desire of pleasure has gone amok, and then we look at the particular proclamation to Israel, that we see that it is showing us that this is the curse of what actually happened first in the garden, and it's being multiplied over and over again, that in a sense that the actual very productive work that they're doing is producing judgment upon themselves over and over again. And by the time we get to the book of Hosea, Israel is in such a place, both spiritually and physically, that they have given over the fullness of who they are to mixing what belongs to God to idolatrous worship. If you look in chapter 2 of Hosea, in looking in verse 5, again, I'm wanting to build the context before we go to the actual passage at hand. In verse 5, halfway through verse 5, it says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. When we see the story unfold with Hosea, that Hosea is in, that Gomer is a representative of, of Israel, that Gomer is a prostitute. But it's not just a prostitute who has given her body and her life over to this false god, but also she is attributing that the very bread and water that she eats and drinks is given to her by these idols. That her wool, that her, co- her covering, that the things in her life are ultimately from these idols and for these idols. But then God responds in verse 6, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. That as Gomer, who is actually a representative of Eve, chooses this path, Toward pleasure in misapplying not only the word of God, but the very purpose of God, that God is thwarting that purpose with thorns and with a wall of division. Where do we see that? We see that in Genesis, that after they committed that sin, there were thorns in their labor. There was a wall of division from them from the garden. There was this separation. This separation, though it is a judgment, it is also a, gra- a grace. Because they can't, she cannot actually pursue fulfillment of the things that she desires and finds pleasure in. In verse 7 it says, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Again, a judgment, but also a grace. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Here we have God saying that she was in such confusion and deception, she did not understand that even the very gifts of these material things were from my hands, not from Baal. That the deception that Satan gave to Eve was the same deception for Gomer, the same deception for Israel, and the same deception for Christians today. That when we look at our purposes, we look at our gifts and our abilities and our ability to have occupations, to be able to be fruitful and to produce monetary income and provision for ourselves. Somehow or another, we have put ourselves in a position where we are seeing those things as distinct from the very gifts of God, that they are ours to do with whatever we please. And it starts with, really, ultimately, misunderstanding our roles, first of all, as male and female. 
Now, I knew I was going to be taking on a big stretch to try to get everybody behind this understanding, but I'm still going to use some other words from another pastor and author, Kevin DeYoung. He says, what is at stake in God making us male and female? Nothing less than the gospel, that's all. The Bible is saying that God created men and women, two different sexes, so that he might paint a living picture of the differentiated and complementary union of Christ and the church. Any move to abolish all distinctions between men and women is a move, whether intentionally or not, to tear down the building blocks of redemption itself. Men and women are not interchangeable. The man and the woman, in marriage especially, but in the rest of life as well, complement each other, meaning they are supposed to function according to a divine fittedness. This is in keeping with the ordering of the entire cosmos. So our very first step, if you think about it, when you are first aware of who you are, one of the things that you come to be understood is that you are a child and you have parents. And somewhere around that time, you should be able to make a distinction sometime in time that you are either a boy or a girl. Your very first understanding of identity is that you're either a son or a daughter. And then in time, if you have a family, you understand that your identity is either a sister or a brother. And then in time, if you are granted a spouse, you would understand that you're either a husband or a wife. And then if you are able to be blessed with children, you will understand that you're either a mother or a father. And here in the church, and when we look at the epistles, we see that there are men in the church and there are women in the church. And when we, give, when we see the instruction given, that there are distinctions and particular callings. So when we have that being the very primary and bedrock and foundation of who we are, it should also have an impact on how we go about in producing and multiplying fruitfulness. But today... When, well, when I was a kid, people used to ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so you kind of skip all of the things of who you are. And you're thinking, what is going to be my occupational monetary way of making a provision for myself? Well, that was the first erosion just to immediately go there instead of saying, first of all, who made you? (laughs) And how did he make you? And what are you? You're a son or a daughter. You start with the basics there first, and it begins to develop an identity so that you would know how to do what you are supposed to do when you grow up. But now, the question is not, what are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to be, a guy or a girl, when you get to a place of making that decision? And they're bringing that down to a younger and younger age. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that this fight is so immense and we are surrendering it left and right as a church. It's not just that this them doing that, it is inside of the church. And it first goes by not understanding the very basics, the very bedrock of how God created us. And when we do take that particular failure on, we are committing adultery. We are stealing from God. We are stealing from the things. And we see that Hosea is stealing the glory of God. She she is, it's not Hosea, Gomer, sorry. Gomer is stealing the very person of who she is. And her attribution of glory and commitment and covenant has been given over to a false God. And what is it for? It is for the purpose of personal pleasure. That is what Eve did in the garden. She exchanged that submission of who she was called to be for a personal pleasure and desire. I'm not going to go back and read this part, but in Hosea, we see, in the, I mean, Hosea chapter 1, we see that God commands Hosea to go and to take a wife of whoredom, to take a prostitute as a wife. And then the first child that they have is Jezreel, which means... God sows. The second child that they have is called Lo Ruhamah, 
which means no mercy. The third child that they have is called Lo Amai, not my people. We see that because there is this intermix, which is... Now, people, Hosea, the book of Hosea is not a courtship book of the Bible. They'll say, I'm going to use Hosea as the model of how to find a wife. Anyone, I don't want anyone leaving here today and say, I guess I've got to go find a prostitute to get married to. Now, I hope there's no confusion there. That there is somewhat of an allegory here, but this is also a reality of what was going on. And it's actually a reality of what God the Father is telling his son to do by going to Israel to marry this prostitute who now having these children that because of the idolatry that is intermixed with Israel, that the children have names of no mercy, have names of not my people. We see that the condition of what is going on in here in Hosea, we need to see. We cannot fast forward over Hosea because it is the condition of not just our culture. It is the condition of the church today. We see in verse 8, it says, She did not know that, in verse 8 of chapter 2, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all of her appointed feasts. Now, I want to point out in verse 10 and verse 11 a condition that we have today. Now, there is a very hyper-celebration um, of androgyny, but also there is a hyper-celebration of lewdness. That an immodest exposure of things that are to be proprietarily given to individuals inside of the context of marriage is a lewdness and an exposure that is just as bad as erasing the distinctions. So a a perverted exposure of one thing is just as bad as erasing it and hiding it in the other. But also we see here that God is going to take away and he's going to diminish. He says, I will put away all of her mirth, her feast, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all of her appointed feasts. This is actually a kind of a funny play on words because what God is saying, I'm going to put an end to the end. The word Sabbath here is to mean to end. To rest, I'm going to put a rest to all of her rest. The kind of Sabbath that we have today, we have stolen from God. We have this hyper theft of trying to find such great pleasure in our amusements, in our entertainments, and basically just a self-pleasuring of who we are. That the same is the condition here in this story in Hosea, that we are full of ourselves. The, the, the most recent statistics are showing that the average teenage and 20-something male spends around eight hours of either being before some kind of television through YouTube or some kind of thing on their phone, or video games, or pornography a day. Eight hours a day. What is supposed to be a typical 40-hour work week in a day? Eight hours of work. They're exchanging the very calling to work and to be fruitful to be about amusements and mirth and false Sabbaths. And the interesting thing is that the reality is in our creation, this hyper-perversion of even rest actually does not give us rest. Go to any doctor and you go, what's one of the number one problems with people today? They're not getting enough sleep. They're not getting enough rest. They're working themselves in a stolen rest. They're working themselves to death in a stolen sleep. This is who we are in the culture today. And this is not distinct, again, from the church. These are 
statistics of people who are sitting in the pews today. That this is who we are. We are either erasing the distinctions of our sexuality or we are flaunting it with lewdness. Instead of resting on the Lord's day and worshiping him, we are full of amusement and self-pleasuring rest. This is the condition of our culture today. And we are in need of a savior. In verse 12, it says, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which the love, my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of days of the bells. And she burned offerings. To, and when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry, and when after her lovers, she forgot me, declares the Lord. Even in this great pursuit of stealing the fruitfulness, God is saying that I'm going to make the vineyard into a forest. There is no fruit. And we can see that even in our economy today, that this hyper desire of stealing the actual pleasure and end result, which is pushing us further and further into socialism and communism, that eventually the, there is no fruit. There is only so much that we can steal from other people until it's all gone. And there is nothing but fruitlessness. And the beasts are there that will devour us. We are still caught up in beautifying ourselves with this self-idolatry here as we see in verse 13. That we are still seeking our own glory. We have forgotten the Lord. So now we get to the particular passage when Jesus has promised to us that he is going to first go after our hearts. It says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. We see that the great husband that we have will capture her heart. That he will change her appetites. That he will change her purposes. When we are given over to the Lord, we can understand that as we erase the distinctions of who we are in God, as we seek out to erase the distinctions as we are as male and female, that Jesus' work in coming, the advent work of Jesus, is to capture that heart, to give us a pleasure in the purposes that were intended for God's people all along. And he will do so in an amazing way that would not be the response of a typical husband when he finds out that he has an adulterous wife. He will speak tenderly to her. That this great husband of ours has the ability to captivate our pleasures in our heart by speaking graciously. You may not think it's graciously sometimes when I'm preaching or when you read the Bible and you see the harshness of the truth hitting you in the face. But you need to understand the just great reality of what we ultimately deserve. For those of you who were here during our prayer time, that when we see the grumbling and complaining Israel, and the response that God gives says, take the staff but to strike the stone instead of to striking the people, that is what it is for us when we hear the word of the Lord. Because of Jesus, when he gives us the commands, he's actually enabling us and empowering us to be able to understand the rebuke without being totally annihilated. <laughs> that if God actually spoke just fully in his wrath, you can see it sometimes when you read about it in, in, in the Old Testament. Israel understood it when, when God's presence was on the mountain. They were like, we can't bear to hear it. You know, we sit comfortably in our uncomfortable chairs <laughs> and we listen to the word and it's kind of like, yeah, yeah it's kind of good, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. It's tender. And then occasionally some of you will get convicted by the word of God. <laughs> and your heart will be drawn in the Lord. And you will find pleasure and delight in even your conviction. That you are glad to have your eyes opened. Verse 15. And there I will give her her vineyards. He will change our now barren forest into vineyards. He will allow us once again to be fruitful. When God has taken over his people by the power of his son, 
It will actually bring forth a purpose that is fruitful. He is going to be able to accomplish the thing that we could not accomplish in the garden by actually making us fruitful. And to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I mean, I can go off on a tangent just about the valley of Achor here, but I do want to highlight. Does anybody know where the valley of Achor, what is that highlighting? You may know what was going on, what story that it's about. Not you, Jennifer, because we've been talking about it all week. It's the, the fall of the wall of Jericho. Now, the, when the walls fell at Jericho, that was a salvific event for God's people. It was a good thing. They submitted themselves into trusting God. They rested in the God. And by doing what he said and resting in him, the walls of Jericho fell down. That the, the enemies were destroyed. And there's two highlights in that particular story. One positive and one very negative. God told them that when you are overtaking them, that they are devoted things inside of there that you are not to take, that you are to destroy. The things of this pagan people are to be destroyed except some gold and silver, which are to be given to the priests, I believe. But all the other things that are beautiful and captivating, must be destroyed for the glory of God. And it was a man named Achan who saw this, and all it says is a garment, a garment of of, of really the people of Babel, which should be somewhat telling, and he saw that it was beautiful. It was pleasurable. It belonged to God's glory to be destroyed so that his glory and his name may be known. But because he found it to be beautiful, that and along with some of the gold and the silver that he kept under his tent, he brought forth judgment upon Israel. In the very midst of salvation, he stole what belonged to God for his own pleasure and goodness. And when they found out, he was set aside so that there could be peace. And in a a strange sense, he has a Christological role because he and his whole household take the wrath of God by being stoned and burned to death so peace could come back to Israel. Just like that, in the midst of salvation, there was this temptation to go right back into being captive by the pagans' beauty and pleasure. That's what kind of people we are. That's why this is a problem for the church today. We are people of salvation, but we are constantly wanting to go back to Egypt. We are constantly constantly wanting to take the beauty of Jericho and Babel, the things that are not of his people. But what else is unique about the story of Jericho and the fall of the walls of Jericho? On a positive element. Who of all the things that were destroyed in the judgment of God inside of, Cher- in this, inside of the city of Jericho and beside the things that Achan stole, there was only one thing that was spared. The person that hid the people? What was her occupation? Uh, something. Uh, something. <laughs> she was a prostitute. And... You go read it in Joshua, it's mentioned multiple times that she's a prostitute. God wants to make it very clear that the only thing that was saved from the judgment was a prostitute. And so here we come to the proclamation of Hosea to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Israel knew that that was a highlighting of what kind of people they are, that they are so given to self-pleasure that they were easy. it's easy that in the middle of salvation that they had to remember Achan's sin. But God, Jesus Christ, is going to also highlight for her that once again, he is going to save a prostitute, that there is a door of hope for the people of Israel. And there she shall answer as in the day of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He's going to bring it back to that very moment of truly understanding our salvation. And again, it's also a reminder of our weakness because we even know that Israel then quickly falls back into sin. But to go back to that moment of joy of the salvation of God. And then in verse 16, it says, In that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer 
will you call me my bell? For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts in the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. When our great husband comes in his great faithfulness, we will have separated from us this synchronism of idolatrous worship. See, when you think about what this particular Gomer is, is that Gomer is married to someone, but she is with other men. It's not as if she was married to someone else. This is why the story is about God's people. We are married to someone, and God is going to annihilate our other bells. But when he does this, he renews all of creation. He renews our whole purpose, that everything that we're called to do in being fruitful and to multiply is going to be made anew. And that all of the war and all of the strife that it is to being able to be fruitful Jesus Christ will make us fruitful without war and without strife. He says that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth to you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. He is going to make us fruitful once again. What he is showing us here is that he's going to reverse not just the effects of Israel's sin at that particular age, but he is going to reverse the effects of the fall at the time of creation. And it says, And they shall answer Jezreel. Now, this name Jezreel is very interesting because it's the only positive name of the three children that there was at least one child that had some hope in the name. The name is God Sows. But we see on the other side of the fall that Jesus is promised when Eve is told that her seed will ultimately bring salvation. Jezreel here is, again, a continuation of that same hope that God will sow, that God will make fruitful that which is barren, that we will be able to call upon the name of Jezreel. We will be able to call upon the name of Jesus because he will sow her for myself in the land, he says. And then he says, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, You are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So as you look back at this particular passage, and I know it's difficult to just jump in in the middle of a book like this and to to start talking about it, but we can see here that it was the pleasure that brought forth the destruction of the purpose, which brought forth, therefore, the judgment that would happen on the people. Well, look what what Jesus does, that in the advent of Jesus Christ, he actually reverses everything back to the right order, to the way it was meant to be in creation, that he is going to make his people his people. And by doing so, and by being the faithful husband, and by being not the one who is going to steal, but actually to give to her all things, he is going to give her the proper purpose. And that as that purpose has been identified in being God's people, as they were intended to be in their creation, then they are able to be at a place where they're able to have true pleasure and joy. Whenever we try to steal the pleasure from God, outside of the context of the purpose that he's given to us as his people, we cause everything to unravel. But because of Jesus Christ and him being the faithful husband and the giver of all things, including eternal life, he is able to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish, and we are now identified as his people. 
We can understand by the conviction of his word the purposes we have as men and women. We can understand now what it is to truly have pleasure in the Lord. Jesus quoted out of the book of Hosea at a time when he was eating with Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. But it says that they, the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus because he would eat with tax collectors, which were the lowest of all thieves, and sinners. Now it's interesting because sinners, you know, we know everyone's a sinner, but whenever that term is used, it's, it's used to help kind of cover up what you have to try to describe if you actually describe what kind of sinners they were, which has to do typically with their perversion sexually. Jesus was sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And he quotes Hosea and he says, I do not desire sacrifice, I desire mercy. Because he is accomplishing mercy. He's accomplishing mercy so that we may know him. It was not people who were continuing in their theft and in continuing in their sexual perversion that he was feasting with. It was people who came to understand that they are Gomer. That they are Gomer in their sin, in their idolatry. They are Gomer in stealing the very purposes and calling of God for themselves. And Jesus has reversed that by being the faithful husband and the giver of all life. So to end our sermon today, it is a call to you to call yourself a Rahab. Call yourself a Gomer. You want to do this. You want to be a part of this story. Because it's only if we are a part of this story that we can truly enjoy the advent of Jesus Christ. That we would acknowledge through our repentance and faith that this is us. And if we are those who do that, he will forgive us. And he will eat with us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father.